Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Dr. Alexander Osterwalder, we'll call him Alex here, is one of the world's most influential innovation experts. He's a leading author and entrepreneur and in-demand speaker. His work has changed the way established companies do business and how new ventures get started. Ranked number four of the top 50 management thinkers worldwide, Alex is known for simplifying the strategy development process and turning complex concepts into digestible visual tools. Together with Yves Pinure, he invented the Business Model Canvas, Value Proposition Canvas, and Business Portfolio Map, practical tools that are trusted by millions of business practitioners from leading global companies. And they really introduced into the strategy dialogue the idea that business models can be intentionally and creatively designed. What most inspires me about his work is its mission. Strategizer, Alex's company, is on a mission to evolve large established companies so that they inspire and activate and liberate their employees to be innovators. They do this by using online courses, applications, and technology-enabled platforms. His books include the international bestseller, Business Model Generation, Value Proposition Design, Testing Business Ideas, The Invincible Company, and the recently launched High Impact Tools for Teams. In this episode, he argues why innovation must begin with your culture. He describes why if there were only one metric you should track to unleash innovation, it should be your innovation kill rate. And he gives us some real-world practical examples of large enterprises who have been able to transform into agile, innovative organizations, proving that it can be done. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Osterwalder. Alex, thank you so much for being here with us. I know you're super busy and appreciate you spending a little bit of time to share your insights with us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I asked this question of everyone and we have many strategy experts on and I always get a different answer. So my question is, what is your definition of strategy? So I do like Roger Martin's where to play, right? Where you're going to play. But increasingly, I'm tending towards seeing strategy as the culture you build. So Netflix has a great innovation culture. Amazon has a great innovation culture. Ping An has a great innovation culture. That's what keeps them ahead. So strategy will emerge if you have the right culture. So I'm putting culture at the center. Now, it sounds trivial because we always say, yeah, culture eats strategy for breakfast. But very few companies deliberately design and manage their culture. And that's key to everything you do, I think. And in particular, you know, my core topic, innovation, without managing the culture, you will never get innovation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then what got you interested in strategy? It seems like it came from innovation. And then you said, that's what strategy is. I've been working on innovation for over 20 years. (laughs) It started out with my co-author, Yves Pinier, and we looked at startups and business models, and we created a ton of tools to help entrepreneurs and innovators, and at the end of the day, strategists, because they adopted our tools, to think about their business. But we haven't seen enough transformation, so we always ask, well, what's missing? What's missing? And the key piece is, if it comes to innovation, is the innovation culture. And you don't need to replace an execution culture. The key here is not to say, oh, everybody needs to be an innovator. No, you want people who manage your company and who make money, but you want to invest in an innovation culture as an addition, right? That's the whole theme of ambidextrous company, being world-class at execution and world-class at innovation and exploration at the same time. That's key. So you're creating a dual culture. And without that, 
no innovation happens, period. Is a dual culture mean two different cultures or is that a culture that can do two things? Or? <laughs> so, it's one culture that hosts two. So it's two cultures under the same roof. So of course, that is a culture in itself because what you create is peace and harmony between the execution culture, we call that exploit, and the exploration culture, we call that explore. And you know, Steve Blank, who is the father of the lean startup movement, and I would say the father of modern entrepreneurship education, he has a very great way of saying this. He says, execution pays your salary and innovation pays your pension. And that's exactly what it's about. You need both. It's not one or the other, it's and. And so, yes, there are two cultures that are different, but they live under the same roof. So it's a culture that creates peace and harmony, you know, between execution and innovation. And it sounds a little bit weird, right, to say peace and harmony, but a lot of innovators, they call themselves pirates or rebels, which I think is the silliest thing on the planet. <laughs> oh, we want people who break the rules. Why don't you just change the rules? So what you really want is a partnership between the innovators and the executors. Because pirates and rebels, what do we do historically? We hunt them down and kill them. You don't want that. You want people who see innovation as a career path, who do that with a passion, but you know are also supported by the execution engine. And that's what differs between startups and corporates. Because if you can't tap into the resources, not just money, but also customers, patents, brand of your existing company, well, you're better off being a startup. So what you really want is innovators that can build on top of what you already have, the customers, the brand. And sometimes, yes, sometimes self-disrupt, but still, nevertheless, you use the brands that you have. So it's really, really important that you create that partnership. Got it. What are the drivers of culture? You lean very heavily into tools. So that seems like that is a big part of the solution. But what are the drivers? It depends what kind of culture you want. There are formal drivers like salary. What do you reward? You know, How do you promote people? Those are formal things. But then there are informal drivers like what do you get kudos for in your company? You know, When are you allowed to travel to this place or to that place? So it's these formal and informal rules and rituals that create the culture. So it's these enablers and blockers that create the behaviors that create the outcomes. Now, here's the key thing. When you execute, failure is not an option. You have a plan, you need to deliver on budget and on time. In innovation, that's the worst thing you can do because actually you want to be really good at killing bad ideas because there are a lot of bad ideas. And that's great because you don't know before you explore if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Scott Cook from Intuit has a really nice way of saying it. He says, behind all of our big failures, we had amazing spreadsheets and PowerPoints. They all looked great. So in innovation, you need an exploration culture. So what you reward is exploration. You reward risk-taking, but in a structured way. Because it turns out, if you do innovation right, it's actually not that risky. Because you'll constantly kill the projects that should be killed based on evidence. And we now know how to do it. It's just that it's been a black box for a very long time for corporations, how to do innovation, because it's very different from execution. And now companies are starting to understand and they're starting to invest in that. One of the key enablers and drivers of an innovation culture is that you are allowed to explore, you're allowed to fail, and you don't get punished for failure. And I'm not talking about building a new supply chain because you've done that 20 times. That's an execution project. But when we explore, that's a different kind of project. There you need to take risks, but you need to take calculated risks. And if you look at the innovation world, the entrepreneurship world actually shows entrepreneurs are risk averse. 
because they take calculated risks, right? So research shows they like risk less than the general population. What's going on? Because they take calculated risks. They know when to stop and they know when to advance. So we have these myths that are completely wrong when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship. So in my experience, the thing that you pulled out of that box originally that people just gravitated to was this idea that you can design a business model. So two questions. Would you say that that's what you are most well known for, although you have taken it further? And secondly, does that tool or approach or mindset, does that help you find these calculated risks? I'm probably best known for the business model canvas it created 20 years ago together with Yves Pinier. But then it quickly came together with the movement that Steve Blank launched, Customer Development and Lean Startup. And those two together is what allows you to explore business models. So what you do is you first map out your idea in a business model canvas, in the value proposition canvas, and that allows you to make the risks explicit. You ask, what needs to be true for this idea to work? Those are your assumptions, your hypothesis, to use a scientific word. And then you go out and test the most critical, most important hypothesis. And the key in innovation and entrepreneurship is actually not the design per se. That's one part of the story. The other part of the story is testing and adapting. So in innovation and entrepreneurship, the ideas are worth nothing and they're easy. What's hard is adapting the ideas until you find a value proposition that customers care about that you embed in a business model that can profitably scale. That sounds very trivial, but the processes in companies are not designed for that kind of search. So that's what we're known for most, this combination together with Steve Blanks and Eric Reese's work. But you know, it doesn't stop there because the myth is that you can pivot yourself to success. If you just pivot long enough, you'll succeed. Well, that's not true. If you look at the venture capital world, well, they invest in portfolios because they can't pick the winner. So, you know, in a portfolio of 10, you'll always have one big winner that pays for the rest. So what does that mean? Instead of pivoting towards success, after a while, when there is nothing, you need to stop. You need to kill the project in a corporation. And in the startup world, it just gets killed because you run out of funding and your customers, you know, never showed up. So it's natural death. And what you do then next is you go to the next startup, you create the next startup. So you eternally explore until you found the right thing. And some will never find it, but actually what shows is over time you get more experience. There are very, very, very few entrepreneurs that get it right the first time. I love that Jeff Bezos quote, if you have a one in 10 chance of a hundred times payoff, you got to take the bet every time, but you got to be ready to lose nine times out of 10. Yes. And then I would give the next quote of Jeff Bezos. He says, Amazon is the best place in the world to fail. How many CEOs do you hear saying that to investors? We are the best place in the world to fail. And of course, he doesn't mean when you're building a new warehouse. He means in exploration. And that's how you attract the innovators because you can't get innovation without exploration. And if you know it's going to work, then it's not exploration, then it's execution, or you just haven't been daring enough. So you will fail for sure if you're innovating, but you will adapt until you find the right ideas. Let's zoom in then to the Jeff Bezos, to the CEO. What should a CEO be thinking about in order to encourage the kind of innovative behavior that you're describing? First, it's pretty basic, just trying to understand how innovation works and how it differs from execution. And then what you need to do as a CEO, together with your board would be my guess, right, is to give innovation power. And that means either you spend at least 40% of your time on innovation, because if you don't, nobody in the company will take innovation seriously. 
Or, and this is one way of doing it, at Logitech, that's how Bracken Darrell does it. That's how he turned around Logitech and infused an entrepreneurial spirit. He says, I spend 40% to 60% of my time on innovation. Or the alternative is, and this is what Peter Ma, the founder of Pingan did, he moved to the chairman role and he created co-CEOs, one CEO responsible for execution and a co-CEO responsible for exploration. They're at the same level of power. What do you do? You show your organization that innovation is important because innovation happens bottom up in terms of ideas, but it happens top down in terms of creating the ecosystem for the best teams and ideas ideas to emerge. Leaders can't pick the ideas because they don't know. They haven't been in the future. (laughs) What they need to do is create the ecosystem for explorers to try. And what will happen automatically, guaranteed, are the best ideas and teams will emerge. Amazon is a good example. Pingan is a great example. In Switzerland, we have a small insurance company to take a a Western one that's smaller, Baloas. That comes from the top by enabling the bottom up. So it's both. Bottom up alone doesn't work. It's luck. Top down alone doesn't work. You need both. You need to create that ecosystem. And only senior leadership can do that. Only the CEO with the approval of the board. Mm-hmm. Pinan is the Chinese insurance company. Is that right? Yeah. So traditionally, they were in insurance and banking. And less than a decade ago, they were only in the top 500 companies of the world. And then Peter Ma hired Jessica Tan and said, you need to build our growth engines. You are responsible for innovation. And he also said, you're going to fail. <laughs> First day on the job, you're going to fail. But what he also said is, it's okay, because you will eventually find out and the right ideas will emerge. And they funded that with 10% of profits and 1% of revenues every year. And guess what happened? Pingan is today, depending on how you look at it, either in the top 20 or the top 10 companies of the planet by doing that. So there are now those outliers who have done exactly that. They invested innovation, but it's not just the money. They gave innovation power and they created this ecosystem for exploration with tons of failures. They hold up their failures. Same thing at Amazon. They hold up their failures and say, you can't, you can't succeed without failures. And the bigger you get, the bigger your failures. But you know that that's the system you need to create for the winners to emerge. So failure is never the goal, but it's an inevitable side consequence of exploration. That's the way you need to see it. I love that. Would you say of everything you described in the cases and examples, would you say that that is in one sentence, the key lesson, or what would you say is the key lesson? The key lesson I show CEOs when I talk to them and senior leadership teams is the ratio of winners to losers. So I ask them, do you guys know how many hundred thousand dollar investments it takes in an innovation or an adventure to create a big success, to create an outlier? What's the ratio? Do you need to invest $100,000 in 10 teams, in 20 teams, 50 teams, 100 teams, you know, 1,000 teams? They say 1,000. Well, that's $100 million to create a big success. And most get it wrong. The number is actually 250. Four out of 1,000 become huge successes or one out of 250. Where's the data from? It's early stage venture capital. So that's the best proxy data we have for corporate innovation is early stage venture capital. Only one out of 250 or four out of a thousand projects give you a 50x return on capital. So probably the real number is even bigger because we're talking revenues in established companies, not just valuation. So that shows that, and this is the biggest message for CEOs, you can't pick the winner. It sounds trivial, but here's the thing. In corporations, we have these lighthouse projects. Oh, we need to invest big 
to create the next big idea. That's the worst thing you can do because you actually maximize the risk of failure. What you need to do is invest small amounts of money in many, many ideas and then kill them very quickly. After three months, you kill 75% of them. You successfully retire them. Mm -hmm. And learn from them. And you only invest in 25%. And you do that about three times and the winners will emerge. That's how the venture world works. We need to replicate the same thing inside the corporate world. And it's happening. That's the good news. It's happening. So if we drill down in that, what do most companies get wrong that prevents them from being willing to spread investments across a lot of bets? Number one thing, they don't kill projects. Number one thing. So we work with one of the top five pharmaceutical companies. We actually work with five of the top 12, but one of the top five where I have a very specific example in mind where we introduced a kill rate because what happened is a lot of teams that have no evidence that their innovation project should continue just found funding somewhere. So they kept the project alive. And sometimes they keep the project alive just to hide failure, but you should not. You should actually be okay to kill the project not get punished, actually get rewarded that you killed it because there's no evidence. So what you really need is a lot of, and killing is the wrong word, of course, you need to successfully retire projects all the time on a large scale to free up the capital to invest in new ideas. And you only invest in those that bring evidence to the table. So it's not the PowerPoint, it's not the Excel, it's what the teams produce in the field. And that's what you need. So you need a high rate of retiring projects. So that's the key thing. It's surprising, no? But that's actually what works. And because if you don't, just one last thing, if you don't, here's what happens. If teams are condemned to succeed, when they're condemned to succeed, what are they going to do? They're going to play it safe. So you'll always get incremental innovation, but you'll never get breakthrough innovation. So when CEOs ask me, Alex, my teams are not doing breakthrough innovation. I ask, well, what's your kill rate? And I provocatively say kill rate. So what do you mean with kill rate? How many projects do you retire after three months? Wow, we don't retire projects. We don't do that. We're great people. Well, there you get it. You're condemning teams to succeed. No chance anybody's going to take a risk. Yes, I got it. That's very clear. So what have you retired or what have you killed? What's an idea or a belief that you've changed your mind about? That's a very good question. You know, we're in the process of scaling. So it's less about retiring, but it's about focus. In our company at Strategizer, we've always loved ideas and we started a lot of ideas and we've actually rarely had ideas that didn't go anywhere. But here's the thing, and that's key also in entrepreneurship and innovation. We, for a long time, didn't take that next step to scaling because a lot of ideas will work, you know, from zero to one million or zero to five, 10 million. Where it gets hard is only few ideas are scalable with a scalable and profitable business model. So that's the one thing I really learned is you actually need to figure out if you want to, right, go into the scalable field. If you're an established company, that's what you need to do. You need to figure out which one of those can actually scale to the size you want to scale it to. So many things will work, but only few, few things will be a hundred million or a $500 million business or a billion dollar business. And that is the hard part. If you want, that's what distinguishes corporations from startups also. There's a real pressure from the start to have to make it big. And that's the key thing. So what was a big insight for me personally is it's actually not that hard to go from zero to a million or zero to five million or so. But where it gets hard is to say, no, no, we're going to stop with all of those $1 million ideas and we're going to take that step to focus on the one that can go to 10 to 100 to 500 million. 
that was for me an insight that I did not understand. If you grow up in Silicon Valley, you just grow up with that understanding because you see a lot of these things. As a Swiss, you hardly see an entrepreneur. So <laughs> it's changed, of course, but when I grew up, there were not that many entrepreneurs. Awesome. Yeah. What are you working on now and how can people engage with you and strategizer? Yeah, so our biggest, you know, kind of dream is getting more established companies, large established companies to build real growth engines, real innovation engines and to stop innovation theater. Because there's a lot of innovation stuff going on in companies, but unfortunately, it's still innovation theater. It's for the show, you know, for the audience. It's not real yet. The results are not there. And it's not to make fun of people who are in innovation in these companies. I think they're trying hard. The problem is the ecosystem is not established. So we're now working with leadership teams to actually change that and to really help them get to that next level. And by scaling Strategizer, that's what we're doing. And that's our passion, you know, to see less innovators suffering inside the companies condemned to do innovation theater and almost to a certain extent liberate them by helping the leaders create the innovation ecosystems so they can actually bring their talent to the table. It's very unfortunate today. A lot of corporate innovators, they're creative, their stamina is amazing, but the ecosystem is not there for them to thrive. So they're likely to leave, you know, first to the competitor and then to build a startup. And that's a pity. And I'll tell you why. And that's why I'm passionate about it is because we always kind of you know say, oh, the startup world is great and it's going to change everything. I actually believe if we could tap into the resources of established companies, we could create a lot of change. And I'm very positive about large established companies creating value for customers, for their stakeholders, their employees, and ultimately also more and more we're seeing for society. So I believe there's a huge force for good. And Mark Benioff of Salesforce talks about that. Established companies can be an amazing force for good because they're already so large. You get them to change, you have an enormous impact. Startups can't get there as fast. So we kind of glorify startups. I love startups, but we forget the worldwide impact will come from changing the behavior of established companies. I love it. Yeah, you're absolutely speaking to a convert here. And I believe that that's just an inspiring vision and one that humanity will depend on. What I love about what you do, you take it to the next level and give us really practical tools and concepts and distinctions that allow us to quickly change our behavior. Thank you. We try. <laughs> yeah, you're doing it. And people can find you on strategizer.com or what's the best way to find you? Just go strategizer.com or Google Alex Osterwalder. You'll find a ton of free stuff. We believe in giving away a lot so people can actually really use our tools. We give them away for free because we make money from selling our platforms to establish large organizations who can afford it. Great. Love it. Thank you so, so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers. Outthinkers.